right, good evening and uh, welcome. Uh, my name is Muwafi Galanazi. I'm the Associate Director for Student Leadership. Uh, tonight is the fourth episode of Conversation with the Leader. And uh, we welcome all uh, the live audience here on Zoom. And also we welcome the listeners on our podcast, uh, Torch Igniters. Uh, you can find that on Spotify and you can listen to the previous episode as well. Uh, tonight we have with us uh, Tina Watwa, who is the Associate Director of Health Promotion and Sexual Misconduct Support here at NYU Abu Dhabi. So Tina, welcome to the show. We're excited to talk to you about what you do to the university and uh, the, the kind of work you engage our students in. So if we start with just a little bit of a brief introduction and you can tell us a little bit about yourself and uh, about your office as well. Sure. Uh, thank you for having me. Um, I was so honored when I received your email um, asking me to participate in this. Uh, so, um, like, um, like you know, Mofak said, I am the associate director of health promotion and sexual misconduct support here at NYU Abu Dhabi. Um, I started the office, I think, now about five and a half years ago, which feels like a very long time. Um, well, simultaneously a long time and a very short time. Um, and the office, I guess, generally started off as, um, you know, looking to support students in um, sort of preventative work around health um, with a focus on mental health, um, making sure that we can create spaces for students to learn more about how to take care of themselves. Um, you know, how do they, uh, you know, sleep better? How do they make sure they're procrastinating less? How do they make sure they're dealing with their stress? Um, how do they really, you know, um, take care of all the things necessary for them to be the best students possible? Um, in addition to that, uh, the Title IX uh, policies were new to the university. And so I worked on sort of um, providing education and support to students so that they know how to navigate issues related to sexual misconduct, as well as raising awareness, because um, that was such a new topic here at NYU Abu Dhabi. So thinking about how do we really intentionally uh, raise awareness so students know both about the policy, but also how to, you know, behave respectfully with one another. Well, this is, this is such a great mission and it does really expand beyond the title and uh, health promotion and especially you talk about mental health. And that's really a key, a key area for us to watch for I mean, under these circumstances and also in general, college students, they deal with anxiety, they deal with image issues, they deal with relationship issues, they deal with a lot of host of things when they come to a university and start their career uh, in, in an undergraduate university. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about uh, sort of the anticipation since now we are graduating the class and we're getting uh, 2024 class starting uh, next fall. Uh, so can you tell us a little bit uh, what your office does and what the university does in general in uh, trying to watch for uh, these issues and help the students navigate them? Sure. Um, I think one of the big things that, um, one of the things that I'm most proud of when it comes to my office is, uh, is the student support group REACH. Um, so they are students who are leaders in the community who um, apply and become part of REACH uh, so they can sort of support the students. And I think they're kind of that first line. Um, they're involved um, in Marhaba. So they're able to form a relationships with first years or incoming students, or first years at that point, they're first years. Um, they're able to form those relationships with them really early on. Uh, to, to let them know that this transition may be challenging. You might experience something that feels overwhelming. You might be homesick. Um, it's okay. It's normal. It's common. Um, and we're here to support you. So I think, um, you know, using that space, using reach um, as sort of an in-between with the first years or with any students um, really helps because I think what we know as student affairs professionals is that um, we, can, we can have a lot of information, we can have a lot of experience, but students are more likely to listen and to really digest information from people who they feel like they can really relate to um, and who have sort of an understanding of their lived experiences. So 
I think um, they've been so, so incredible in terms of being able to sort of meet with the students um, formally, informally in the dining hall, just noticing someone's down or upset and sort of having that ability to that expertise and checking in with them and saying, how are you doing? What's going on with you? Um, have you heard of the NUP? You can come talk to us in peer-to-peer -peer counseling. Um, and we, we notice uh, through our sort of, you know, um, our data and what we just hear from the REACH students is that they get, they, they interact a lot with first year students. So I think when we're thinking about transitioning to university, especially for many of our students, whether it's a new country or maybe it's a new culture, maybe they're from the UAE, but this environment, NYU Abu Dhabi is just so different from their past experiences. I think they, um, you know, that it can be, it can be bumpy. I mean, I know when I think back of my transition into university, so long ago, I'm not going to tell you how long ago, but so long ago, um, it was, you know, I was, I was so excited about it, but it was, it was a challenge. I was used to sort of a routine schedule um, in high school, and then you have a lot more free time in university, and so how do you make use of that time? So um, I think that, you know, it's, it's common for students to feel some sort of a transition, but it's good to know um, that they have that support. So I think REACH is so incredible when it comes to comes to that for their entire community, but particularly for first years. Um, another really cool thing that we do is the Really D show. Um, so it's a, it's a show, as everyone knows, that, um, that students first years watch. Um, it's required and it's in the Red Theater. It's this beautiful production. It's a musical where students are, uh, you know, watching their their upper, their upper class students, first years are watching the upper class students perform um, a number of different skits about adjusting to university. What are their resources? It's something that when I watch, I always get goosebumps. Um, you know, I just think that it is just a beautiful, beautiful production. And um, it's something that I'm so, you know, fortunate to be a part of um, over the summers and helping them sort of explore how do we, how do we talk about something like consent? Um, how do we talk about something like, uh, you know, self-harm, these topics that can be feel really um, foreign to a lot of our first year students that might, they might not have even heard of those phrases or it hadn't, it may not have been discussed in their home countries or in their schools or in their families. So being able to work on that program to, um, you know, think about how do we how do we um, provide spaces for students to learn about this, but in a really culturally sensitive, um, sensitive way? This is this is fascinating, and I'll uh, I'll get in a little bit to the cultural aspect of it. And I would imagine it's uh, it's such a difficult uh, job for you to adjust in terms of uh, adding the cultural component to what you do. But let me let me just ask you uh, more about reach. So I hear you uh, refer to them as a unit as a space, uh, they are uh, conduit, uh, they help other students, uh, they peer advisors. So can you tell me a little bit more uh, about the, the program in terms of uh, uh, how do you go about recruiting for uh, REACH? And also what are some of the elements that goes into training so they can be successful in what they do? Sure. Um, so reach, uh, you know, first with the recruitment process. So generally students um, apply to become a member of reach. Um, historically, it's been an unpaid position. It's a volunteer position. Um, they, you know, we get on the order of, you know, 40, 50 students applying. Um, and they're really, they're really, you know, all the applications are beautiful. There are students who are really deeply passionate, interested, in supporting their community, um, either through sort of like raising awareness around sensitive topics, um, raising awareness around mental health, um, or their students who have a keen interest in um, psychology. And so they wanna do, they wanna sort of strengthen their, their counseling skills, their peer-to-peer -peer counseling skills. Um, so we get a lot of applications. We, um, you know, ask a series of questions, we review them, um, and then we uh, start the interview process. And I think one of the things that um, has really transitioned over the years as we've been really, really intentional about trying to have a very diverse group of students um, participate in REACH. And so 
diverse, not just about, you know, country of origin or ethnicity or religion, but those, though those of course matter and we're very um, mindful and cognizant of that, but also just um, different majors or different friend circles, uh, different um, interests and hobbies outside of academics. And what we've noticed is that when we're able to have like a more diverse group, then more students will access reach, right? So if they, if they, if we have a student athlete, for example, which we've had um, plenty of, um, students will, you know, who might have been a little bit hesitant about going to the Nook, if they see another athlete in there, they might say, hey, you know what, I really, I really um, might check it out. Um, and so we've been really intentional about trying to diversify our group um, and, and make sure that we have, you know, commuting students versus students who live on campus, things like that, just so that we can reach, reach, um, as many as many students as possible. Um, and I think, you know, we've, we've had, we've more recently had a lot of conversations um, amongst the group about, you know, how can we have really inclusive practices when it comes to recruitment? Um, so how can we sort of check our own biases? How can we be really aware of, you know, how we might respond to someone if we know that they're um, male identifying or female identifying, how might we respond if we know someone has had experience um, doing peer counseling in high school? Um, that doesn't necessarily mean that they will be, um, you know, appropriate for our group just because they've had past experience. So sort of being able to work with the team to explore all those areas and making sure that we're really deeply thinking about how to create a space that's really inclusive and diverse. I'm really intrigued in terms of handling difficult conversations. Mm. And, uh, I don't think it's just some people are more ready for it than the others, but it might require also some training. What kind of training or what kind of orientation do you do with your uh, reach group uh, in order to handle some of these uh, difficult conversations? Because it doesn't really only uh, help the students to process, but also it does impact that uh, member of reach. Yeah. Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, so when reach students first come in, we do some some pretty basic training initially, I would say things like mental health 101. Um, and then we go a lot into the what we call active listening skills. So how do we sort of teach students, um, these reach students about how to engage in non judgmental listening? Um, you know, we talk about the difference between hearing and listening. You know, you can walk down the street and you can hear noise. That's very passive, but being able to deeply listen to the experiences of other people, it requires more of an active stance. So how can you really fully be present? How can you engage in non-judgmental communication? How can you sort of, you know, ask open-ended questions? So we talk a lot about, um, about the way we communicate. And I think that's so critically important to the foundation of REACH because we um, want students to feel like whenever they come to a REACH member, they're not being judged for anything that they bring. Um, so there's, you know, that's really critical to sort of, I would say that's the foundation of, of what REACH needs to have. Um, but more specifically, we go through sort of every week, especially early on in the semester, um, a number of different topics that we're, we're making sure that students are trained in. So I do a session on eating disorders. Um, that's really clinical, you know, that is something that provides them with pretty specific detailed information about eating disorders and disordered eating, but then sort of lets them know and works with them to see what are your boundaries when you meet with someone who has an eating disorder, because that is actually not an appropriate space for reach to sort of do peer to peer counseling. Um, for the most part, it's a referral. So how do you sort of, you have this knowledge, you're being able to assess that this is too high needs for, um, for the Nook, but you still can provide support. You can still be an active listener. You can still sort of um, learn about the experiences of the student that came and spoke to you. But your ultimate goal is to make sure the student gets to a counselor or a you know medical professional um, in the health center. So um, working with them on you know things like uh, the difference between anxiety and and stress. Um, you know how do you notice depressive students symptoms, self harm. Um, what to do in cases like that. So, so a lot of this education um, is, you know, very centered on mental health, uh, though we do, we do more wellness uh, training as well on things like sleep and procrastination, 
um, on time management, things of that nature. But I would say uh, we spend a lot of time on very like clinically focused mental health um, issues, both in an effort to educate the students. So they're able to assess and they're able to say, you know what, in this situation, I, you know, I actually do need to call the wellness exchange or I actually do need to sort of refer um, to, uh, to a counselor. Um, you know, quite, quite honestly, very almost never does the REACH student have to call the wellness exchange. Usually it's just, a, it's just a referral to counseling and helping the student get there. So versus just saying, hey, go to counseling, it's great. Um, being able to say, you know, I think counseling would be really great for you. Can I help you make that appointment? How can I sort of bridge that gap? Um, the other sort of thing we do that's tied to active listening is that every week um, we split the group in half and we meet with, I meet with the students and we, uh, we practice role plays. So we have two students, you know, when we're in person, which is always much, much better. We have two students um, sitting on a modulus and they're pretending that they're in the nook. One is the nooker, the reach student, and one is a student. And the student um, brings in a scenario. It's sometimes hypothetical. It's sometimes their real ex experience. It's sometimes something their friend went through. And they, they act it out. They role play. As if not all of us are, are sitting there with like a notepad, which we are. We're sitting there with a notepad and a pen. Um, and so they go through and for 15, 20 minutes, they do a role play. Um, we pause and we give feedback. So as a group, individually, we share what we noticed that the nooker did really well. And then we talk about areas for improvement. So it's a really, it's a space for um, growth. It's a space for, you know, knowing what your strengths are, knowing the areas that you might need to work on. Uh, but it's a very safe space. I think that it takes a lot of courage for the REACH students to engage in that. Um, but I think they do so because it feels like a safe space and they feel they themselves are getting something um, from that experience. This is really fascinating and a very, uh you know, uh, well-planned sort of a strategy in terms of, uh, you know, I like the training that uh, these case studies and these scenarios can get you in a, in a, give you an idea and what you expect as, as a new member would reach. Uh, but if, uh, let's say the, the new class, if they, um, they want to be, if they're going to be listening to the podcast at the session, and they might wonder, how do I take advantage of reach? Is there is a, is there is a process uh, where they can uh, uh, request or connect with reach members and uh, get a session? Yeah, there's um there's a way to sign up and, and make an appointment, um, and it's private. No one sees um you know that you made an appointment except the person that you'll be meeting with. So you can see, you can say, oh, you know what, I want to meet with this person. There's something about them, you know, whether it's something that you know about them previously or just something that, you know, you feel like they're from your home country, maybe they'll understand your experience better, that you can make an appointment um, or there's just walk-in hours. So it's either or, but I would say um, it can also just be sending a message to the REACH Facebook group or the Instagram and saying, um, you know, none of these nook times work for me, but I'd love a chat. And those are the students that are going, you know, the REACH students are going to make time for, for that student to, you know, take a walk or um, do a Zoom, you know, be able to just touch base with them. Um, and I, and that does, that has happened actually before first year students have even gotten here, that there are students that, you know, are interested and curious uh, to learn more about REACH and they've reached out um, ahead of time and connected with students. Very good. Uh, beside uh, REACH and the sort of the go-to uh, group, uh, do you provide any orientation or training to uh, the, the staff members? Because, you know, sometimes students will build, uh, uh, you know, uh, trust and relationship with certain staff members and they're more comfortable talking to them. Uh, do you have any sort of uh, training that is geared towards staff or faculty in that uh, regard? Yeah, it's, I wouldn't say it's an orientation, but um, I have done a number of sessions um, with different groups. So, so um, one with uh, fitness and athletics last year, sort of mental health 101, um, global ed, um, different groups, different cohorts where, um, you know, we talk about uh, students situations that might come up and how to respond, how to best respond to them. Um, I've done a number of sessions for faculty around sort of, um, you know, uh, 
when students surprise you and they might say something or they might do something and you're not, you know, faculty might not know how to respond in the moment. And so working with them sort of um, presentation style around like what to do, but then serving as a resource for them um, should they have an issue that comes up and they, they, they aren't sure about if they handled it appropriately, um, being able to sort of provide guidance around that. Yeah. Uh, so you talk a little bit about mental health. And mental health is really an interesting topic nowadays, you know, under uh, COVID-19 and a lot of people are, I would say, not necessarily more comfortable talking about it, but they are engaging in conversation around mental health. Uh, some they are uh, processing some of their uh, thoughts, some they are addressing that, uh, you know, through their network, through their friends, uh, they, they talk about their uh, frustrations and what have you. Some even they would might seek uh, professional help as well. Uh, but as you know, in generally in the field uh, and can help it culturally, there is a stigma built around uh, dealing with mental health or acknowledging uh, mental health issues. How do you go about, uh, you know, helping first your students and also helping others navigating these uh, uh, stigma elements around mental health? That's such a great question. I think, um, you know, I think that's always been a challenge and I think that would be a challenge everywhere. Um, though I think it's a particularly interesting to do this work um, here at NYU Abu Dhabi because people are coming from all over the world. Uh, when it comes to stigma, um, I think one of the things that I think is so important is starting from a place of curiosity, like really trying to understand, um, you know, what the, what the students experience is, how is this talked about in their culture, you know, really not, not making assumptions like I know um, what their experience was, but how do we you know, how is this explored? Because I think sometimes um, language is so critically important. So because I call something mental health, that could be just like someone just can't go there. But if I say, if I use the language around, if I say stress, if I say you're feeling frustrated, that might be more accessible. So I think sometimes we have to be um, careful about the language we, we use in our programming. Um, you know, we still, we still do things like Mental Health Awareness Month, right? So we're, you know, we're, the umbrella is mental health, but I think what we, what we work hard to do and what is really important, um, what I think is really important is being able to sort of frame for students that mental health isn't this big, scary word. It's really just about taking care of a part of yourself. And so some of the framing that we do is if you hurt your leg, you might go to a doctor. If you're really down, you might go to a counselor, you might go to peer counseling. So being able to sort of normalize this idea that we have um, we all have mental health. Mental health sounds scary to people, and it's not the same as mental health or mental health issues or mental health disease. We all have mental health. You know, it's just a part of our part of our health. And so, if we're able to um, take care of you know our stress and take care of our um, ability to regulate and take care of our sleep and take care of our um, you know, if we, we do, you know, suffer from um, more serious mental health issues, take care of it either through medication or counseling, um, then, then you will feel better and it will allow you to be better in different aspects of your life. You'll be, you know, you'll be able to be a better student. You'll be able to be a better friend. You'll be able to be, um, you know, a better, uh, you know, leader in the community. So I think sort of, um, you know, framing it, framing, I think can be so, so important for students and not feeling like we have to, we have to call it something. So if a student comes in and wants to talk about, you know, feeling really, you know, angry and frustrated, there's no reason to talk about it as, you know, if it is tied to a mental health issue, there's no reason to talk about it. You know, we just need to sort of use the language that they're comfortable with knowing, you know, they're the experts of their own life and how can we, you know, help them navigate this situation. Yeah, I'm really glad that you, you talked to the reframing sort of uh, of the concept itself, uh, because uh, really it's all about providing the space. And it's yeah. uh, people comfortable enough to come to that space and uh, be themselves and share comfortably and having a trust, uh, a trust element. Uh, what are some of the strategies you think uh, us as staff and faculty can employ to create uh, such a safe space where people can come to it and be more vulnerable 
and uh, really ask for help? Yeah, I think that's a that's a great question. I think um, I'm always so impressed by, especially our campus life colleagues at um, you know the different ways that they're able to create those spaces because I don't think it's a one size fits all. Um, I think that you know. I think that there are a few things that, you know, are tenants or things that we can sort of do um, to create those spaces, but I think we all have our own style. So, um, you know, some of, the, some of the ways that, you know, Wayne engages with students is really different from how I might, um, but students really gravitate towards him and students really gravitate towards me. So they're different students sometimes. And so I think that's really important for us as Campus Life to remember that it's not just, you know, this office or that office that should be, the ones that students can be safe and vulnerable with. It's about the relationships. It's about the, the, the meaningful relationships that we're all forming with students in our different, in our different spaces. Um, you know, so I think that's one of the, one of the uh, misconceptions I think that's sometimes out there. Um, but in addition to that, I think, you know, it's really, it's really important um, to have a non-judgmental space. So judgment can be conveyed in the smallest of ways. You know, if I'm like, that, that can feel judgmental to someone who's opened up to you. If I raise my eyebrows or if I, you know, just shake my head like this, like, what were you thinking? Um, that is going to shut someone down. So I think being able to be really careful about how we are responding to what someone's um, trusting us with is so critically important. Um, I think carving out that space is only going to feel useful to a student if they feel like you're, you're not placing judgment or you're not comparing them or you're not, um, you're not sort of putting them in a good, bad column. You're not saying, well, that was a bad decision. You're really exploring, you know, why, why something might have happened and how can we, how can we work together to sort of um, make this a better experience for you. Um, so, so th those yeah. are two, two things that I think, so sorry, go ahead. No, no, it's okay, go ahead. Um, I also, you know, I also find, uh, I, I was talking to the REACH students about this earlier this week. I find that when we're able to also like uh, be more playful with students or find opportunities to engage with them outside of our um, office roles, that also creates um, that creates some space for students to be vulnerable. And so oftentimes when we share parts about ourselves, which quite frankly for me doesn't come naturally, you know, I'm a therapist in train, by, by training. And so, so much of my training before this was about having those boundaries. And this, this role has really, really showed me the beauty of, um, of, of, you know, uh, crushing some of those boundaries and being able to open up with students about your own struggles. So like my own struggles with being, you know, uh, like COVID-19 or, you know, things that I might have experienced when I was younger, because I think that they can see, you know, that you trust them enough to share and that that creates trust within the relationship so that they can feel like they have the space to share as well. And I, I think that's one of the things that I feel like has, um, has shocked me the most about this role because I feel like I wish I had known that a lot earlier because it's just it's really opened um, open space for me to really connect uh, more deeply with students and let them into you know parts of my life and in turn they've let me into into parts of their life. And, and I think this is such a great point and it's uh, it's a little bit of uh, it's of a shift in terms of. Uh, of the way we address uh, things. Uh, I'll tell you personally, when I, when I moved to academia, and this is my first time working with, uh, with academia, and uh, I'm all about the boundaries, and yeah. all about uh, the different roles the students uh, will take on and the faculty and the staff and what have you. But then you come into a university and there is so much of integration and engagement and, uh, and that is beautiful, I think. And I think uh, capitalizing on that and doing something with it, uh, while there is no need to have a, a difficult conversation, but when it comes time to a difficult conversation, I think people will be more at ease uh, if they know the person, if they have rapport with that person. 
But let me, let me ask you, let's say a staff member is noticing something uh, or having some concern about a student's situation, uh, but they don't feel comfortable addressing that with the students. What would be the best approach? Yeah, I think there's, there, there are a number of things that um, the staff member can do. If they know that someone else um, might have a stronger relationship with them, I think they can reach out to that person. So, you know, if, if, um, if they know, you know, Renee is really close to the student, maybe Renee might be in a position to have uh, the conversation with the student, um, but they can always go to, they can always come to me and we can sort of troubleshoot. I, I find myself doing that a lot with our colleagues and just popping over and saying, now popping over is more challenging, but just uh, giving me a call or an email and just saying, you know, I'm wondering how to navigate this situation. Um, do you have any advice? Um, and I know the counselors, um, you know, also have provided that role really, really well for, um, for our colleagues um, in certain situations. And I think if the, situ if, the, if the concern is of safety, then going to the counselors is, is sort of the best, um, the best next step. But if it's just, you know, you want it, you're, you notice something has changed in a student. I think oftentimes, you know, people notice there's a shift, you know, someone who might've been bubbly before is kind of seems down or someone who um, always showed up on time is always late for meetings. Um, those are sometimes indications that something might be off. And so being able to notice it um, and sort of, if you're not sure about how to navigate that conversation, um, coming to me or coming to um, other colleagues that might be um, more comfortable with those conversations can help either walk you through or provide support. Yeah. So let's shift gears and talk a little bit about misconduct. We talked about uh, how do you orient around it? How do you train? How do you talk about different elements that goes into, uh, into these issues? Uh, but uh, what is your office role in terms of uh, misconduct and uh, how do you go about uh, running that? Did you say what are the office goals? No, role. Role, okay. Yeah, so um, so one of the one of the things that we um, we want to do is to raise awareness around what sexual misconduct is. What is our sexual misconduct policy at NYU, which is a global policy, and how can students get support if they find themselves in a situation that felt uncomfortable? Um, so raising awareness around that is, I would say, one of the one of the um, one very central part of the office. Um, but even more than that, so that's very policy driven, but even more than that is to, um, to have conversations, have, um, have conversations in sort of uh, sp create spaces for students to talk about uh, issues that might come up that might not feel entirely tied to sexual misconduct, it might, but just situations that they might navigate, that situations that they might find themselves in. How do I make sense of this? How do I get support? Um, how do I really uh, sort of understand how this fits in? Um, you know, I think across culture, sexual misconduct can look really different. And while we have one policy that says, this is what sexual misconduct is, this is what it's not, um, that's one thing. But when we talk about the real lived experiences of students, that can feel really different. And so what is happening in your spaces? What is the joke that someone made that you felt like was really offensive? Um, what is a situation where, that you were in where someone you know, might've touched you on the leg that felt inappropriate or something more ser serious? And how do we talk about that? How do we talk about culture here? How do we try to work towards um, you know, having people have a better understanding of the impact of, of some of these things? Uh, so how do you go about navigating, uh, defining some of these issues within a cultural uh, sensitive contest and also uh, without diluting some of those concepts or making light of it? Yeah, I mean, I think part of why we do, why policy is sort of at the forefront is because that is pretty rigid. Our policy is straightforward. You know, this is a violation, this isn't. And so we have our mandatory consent zone training that, um, that all students at some point, every two years will have to participate in. Um, and this really talks about first, like talks about just policy, you know, what is um, prohibited conduct, conduct uh, what is a violation. But then what we, what we did very much in collaboration with students, really working with 
students across the board, um, knowing that they, like I've said, and I, you know, I truly believe this, that they're the experts of their own experiences. Um, they worked with us to sort of create more nuanced scenarios. So we talk about policy and then we get into sort of scenarios that might happen. And we have students engage in sort of, was this a policy, was it not? Even if it wasn't a policy, was it not, even if it wasn't a policy, was it still not okay? So having people understand that just because something's not a policy violation doesn't mean it's okay. It still could have made someone feel very uncomfortable. It could make someone feel um, disrespected. And so being able to sort of talk about it in a more nuanced way versus um, policy violation or not, I think helps us get at some of that cultural piece and help people understand that why, while maybe in the, you know, before they came to NYU Abu Dhabi, like this sort of behavior was okay and it was the norm, um, it actually can really impact someone's worth, self-worth. It can really impact um, the way someone feels about themselves. It can really feel violating towards them. And so how do we sort of help people see that maybe this was your experience in um, where you're from or in your family or in your high school, in your, you know, in your world before this, but, um, but actually it is useful for us to have a conversation about this across cultures, across experiences, um, because, you know, every, you don't know everyone's history and everyone, um, you know, everyone should sort of be on the same page about what's okay and what's not okay. Um, and, and part of that is talking about communication. You know, I think that's one of the main takeaways is that when engaging in something um, with someone else, uh, something sexual with someone else, you have to be able to communicate about it. And how do you open up the lines of communication because we have those cultural differences. And you can be two people from the same country, the same neighborhood, the same, you know, the same, um, grew up on the same street and you still can have cultural differences. And you know that is really important for for us to discuss because that helps people understand that you know you still have to communicate. You still have to say what your boundaries are. What's what you're okay with. Yeah, this this is this is really this is really good. And uh, you know, policy is policy, but also uh, I I do truly appreciate that. Also, there is a lot of education around it because sometimes you don't want to wait for an incident until you handle it. And I think. Uh, what you guys do in terms of educating uh, these uh, uh, young people uh, around these issues also, it would help mitigate a lot of the future, uh, you know, concerns and avoid some, some of these incidents. Uh, let, me, let me ask you in general, and this is sort of the last uh, official questions before we move to the, to the fun part of the, the interview. Uh, so we, as a community, now we are, uh, you know, working through a lot of difficulties in terms of uh, working remotely, trying to adjust to that. Uh, earlier, we talked about the boundaries. There is not much boundaries between family life and work life. Uh, uh, sometimes you're not even sure what day it is. Is it, is it the weekday? Is it the weekend? Uh, working hours are kind of merged all over the place. In order to keep uh, good mental health, uh, what are some of the advices you, uh, you can give us as a working professional to kind of uh, uh, stay on, uh, on mission, but also take care of ourselves. Yeah. Um, I think routine is really important during this time. I think it's very easy for us to sort of be, um, you know, out of routine um, because of, you know, there's, like you said, there are no boundaries, but I would say um, being flexible with your routine. So that sounds like it could be, maybe contradicting itself, but it's, but sort of like have a routine, but to not be really rigid about it and know that there are times that you might not stick to it. So if you say, okay, I want to wake up at eight o'clock in the morning and I want to exercise. If you wake up at nine o'clock and you can't exercise before your first class, you know, be really gentle with yourself about that because it is a really challenging time and just work towards, okay, now where can I carve out time later in the day to, to exercise? And so I think routines, but not being very rigid because I think that sets us up sometimes for um, feeling like we failed. Um, and I think um, it's really, really important. Uh, uh, I would also say, you know, I touched on this when I talked about routines, but I would also say it's so important to be gentle 
with yourself right now. I think these are really, really unique circumstances. Um, and I think it's very easy to, for people to feel the pressure of being super productive, given that you may feel like you have more time. Um, but in actuality, the time feels really different and it's okay to just be doing the bare minimum um, and just trying to sort of stay afloat. And I think many people are in that space right now where they're trying to just get through every day and it feels um, like that in and of itself could be um, something you should sort of pat yourself on the back about and feel good about because it is really, it is really difficult. Um, and I think, you know, some of the more, you know, we've been posting a lot about this on social media, but thinking about what are, you know, what are your self-care activities? What are the things that you generally do to take care of yourself? Trying to figure out ways to engage in them. Um, so if you, if you normally not, take, if you normally take Zoom um, classes, but then you, I mean, you take fitness classes, but then they're no longer accessible for you and you're not really gelling with the Zoom fitness classes, what are other things you can do to stay active? Um, you know, if you're someone, you know, generally sort of finding ways to socialize, um, sometimes feel, socializing on Zoom can feel really, really um, like it's not, it's not um, meeting the mark for you. So finding out ways that you can feel connected to other people. And then something that I'm finding so useful right now is, um, is practicing gratitude, which uh, there's so much research around the practice of gratitude and how it can really improve your mood and your mental health and, uh, you know, finding the, you know, being able to acknowledge that this is a really, really hard time um, and not everything is rainbows and unicorns, but that there are things that we can be sort of intentionally looking out for that we can feel grateful for. And I think the act of actually writing that down, you know, uh, pen to paper or, you know, however works for you, um, can, you know, we, we, we write it down in our house, like really visually. So like everyone in the house can see it, it's in our kitchen. Um, and I think that that's just serving as a reminder, uh, that, that we are, um, that, that there, there are things in our life that we, we have to be grateful for. Um, and then the last thing, I know this is a very long winded answer is, I'm taking a I'm taking an online course right now um, that's called the Science of Well-Being, and it's a it's a really cool course and it's sort of like the science behind happiness. And one of the things that was recently introduced to me that I think is worth sharing is this idea of savoring. And so it's kind of another way of thinking about um, about being really present. But um, one of the ways that we can so in addition to gratitude is I think like practicing. Um, really being present and savoring something in your life every day. So if it's, you know, savoring the walk that you go on, really being able to like smell what you're, you know, engaging all the senses, smelling what you are walking past, looking around, um, looking at the specific colors of the flowers. So it's not, you know, you're not just walking past it, you're really savoring it. Um, that was a new concept to me. Um, and I started, you know, part of this class is sort of to, rewire yourself and so you you engage in these um activities and i've noticed that it's been really um it's it's improved my mental health so i thought i would share it with this group very cool so uh now we're gonna move into this uh, rapid fire or light-hearted questions and since you talk about safer lighthearted be gentle yeah yeah, yeah it's, it's fun and you talked about safering so let me ask you about what is your uh favorite ice cream flavor I'm so boring. It's vanilla. I'm like so embarrassed I'm, to admit that's that. That's me too. <laughs> oh, really? Yeah. Like good I, vanilla I, with a little black, like little uh, vanilla bean in it. Oh, great. You're not the, the person that goes into the ice cream shop and try everything else and they say vanilla? Okay. Yeah. <laughs> I just go with vanilla or sometimes coffee if it's a uh, gelato. Cool. Awesome. Uh, so, uh, a childhood cartoon that you would uh, want to watch over and over again now? Oh, yeah. Childhood cartoon that I would want to watch over and over again. I mean, I watched a lot of Tom and Jerry growing up. Okay. Um, <laughs> it was something I did with my dad on Saturday. So that and Bugs Bunny. It's kind of lame, but it's true. That's very cool. Cool. 
Okay, so let's imagine that uh, not necessarily you're good at it, but a sport of your choice that uh, you wish that you can be a professional uh, player. Easy, soccer, football. Oh, cool. Very easy, yeah. <laughs> so if you get to have one superpower, which one would it be? Um, to fly, to be able to fly. Cool. And finally, what is the most rewarding part of your job? The students. I mean, I, I, uh, I feel like I have grown so much from the work that I do with the students. I'm going to get emotional because it's been an emotional week wrapping up a lot of, um, student, uh, student um, programs and, and such and um, but they're they're incredible here uh, they are such thoughtful leaders um, they challenge me they teach me so much and I you know I just feel very honored to 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 um, to get to spend time with them there's sometimes that I I'm in meetings and I feel just like, I can't believe this is my job sometimes because it really uh, checks off so many lists, so many um, sort of things on my checklist of what I'd want. Um, you know, I have amazing colleagues uh, um, and the students just are just, you know, wonderful and um, yeah. Very good. So now I turn to the audience and say, uh, if you would like to ask Tina any questions or would like to engage in the conversation, please just unmute yourself and go ahead. Well, I know that I also want to throw Lucas under the bus because I know he has a question, but I can go first with a question. And um, it's kind of a two-parter. Um, I know that you kind of shared with us that you've done a lot of reflecting during maternity leave and then also like now about what it means to kind of keep this work-life balance, what it means, what your role means, what your work means. And then we also had a lot of conversations today with the seniors about what we want our legacy and reach to be. And so kind of within that scope of like how you've been reflecting on your work and then also like what you want your legacy to be, what are some realizations or things that you've discovered about your role and um, what you want to do in your legacy and all of that? Wow, cat, way to hit it on a <laughs> big note. Okay, um, so you know, I think that uh, that when I think about like legacy, or when I think about um, you know, whenever I leave NYU Abu Dhabi, um, I I really do think about like I want students who have interacted with me to feel heard, to feel like they had that they felt like they had the space to share and they were, they had an empathetic listener, someone who cared, someone who, um, who, you know, who really, um, you know, cared about their experience. So I think that's one part, like I want students to really feel that. Um, I also like really want sort of the, the, uh, I, I want to come back to NYU Abu Dhabi like 10, 20 years down the road after I leave and to see that, you know, mental health awareness and sexual misconduct awareness is just um, maybe less necessary because that, you know, we are living in a society and the work that we've sort of the foundation that we built here, um, you know, together with students uh, really helped to sort of reduce stigma and, um, and um, sort of increase, uh, increase understanding across those spaces. Um, and then what was the first part? Remind me the first part of your question. So like reflecting on maternity. About what you reflected on and what you kind of, any realizations that you come to as you reflected on your role during your maternity leave and now during this kind of weird yeah. quarantine. Yeah, I've been sharing with Reach a lot how that, that maternity leave, like Aria is the easiest baby ever. So my maternity leave, I got a lot of time to think and explore. And um, I thought a lot about how um, how it's, you know, I, I want to be better at having that work-life balance and how important it is to me, but it also made me realize how much I love working and how much I love sort of having the separate part of my identity outside of being a parent. Um, and that made me think about what I love most about my work. And so, 
you know, I love a lot of sort of the strategic work around diversity, equity, inclusion and things, you know, building new programs and working with different offices. But I feel like as, you know, there are times that I wish I had more interaction with students. And so feeling like that, I want to create more space as I move forward to really meet and interact with more students um, outside of the students that I naturally check in with and sort of you know how that's really important to me like moving forward because that fills me in a lot of ways and it also helps me do my job better because i hear about the experiences of other students thanks kat lucas what's your question hi lucas hi how are you it's so good to see you i'm doing well good to see you as well um i wanted to know um i know we've talked about this, I think, briefly in reach. Um, but thinking about language and I think the diversity of our students, there, there are individuals who I think are, are learning English for their second or third or fourth language. And if we think about the expression of emotion, perhaps sentiment coming through better in some languages. Uh, right now, I think for, for my understanding is the, the Nook functions almost entirely in English. What is kind of your thinking on diversity? I suppose not diversifying that, but think, thinking to the extent of which we express differently in different languages and then opening that up so reach can be more accessible to kind of our population. I, I love that. Um, when um, Donna Alhasni was a reach member, she was in the nook and she did most of her sessions in Arabic. And what we found, and I think what she found actually was that um, even if she started the session in English, like this, you know, so many of the students that would come to the Nook to meet with her, they would feel much more expressing um, their vulnerabilities, their feelings in their in their native language. And I think the more we can do that um, as as reach as a community, I think I think that would be wonderful. I think um, that's something we haven't really spoke about since Donna. So I think it's a great reminder to sort of explore that for next semester and figuring out like even being able to advertise like I speak these languages fluently um, you know so people know that they can speak in their native tongue I think that would be amazing any other questions if not uh, Tina thank you so much for giving us a window and what you do and the great things you do to the uh, to our community and uh, working with our students and it's just uh, wonderful uh, wonderful to know uh, about all of these programs and wonderful to know that uh, our students are well taken care of and uh, really thank you thank you for uh, the opportunity and thank you for uh, accepting the invitation and coming talking to us Thank you. This was so fun. Thank you all for, for participating and listening. And um, it's so good to see you, Jay. I haven't seen you in so long. It's so lovely to see you. Um, good to see you too, Tina. <laughs> thank thank, you, thank you, you, everyone. Thank you. And next week, as a reminder, we have uh, Professor uh, Brian Waterman. Uh, he's uh, going to be the first faculty on the show. He's uh, uh, going to join us next uh, Monday. Same uh, Zoom link, same time. Uh, if you have time, please come and join us to that conversation. And until then, uh, be kind to yourself and each other. Good night. Good night. Thank you.